those people who were Sally Smith, who at 28 lost her job at, at Lehman and went to work for Etsy, which was this you know, brand new, nobody knew what it was company. And she's a newbie who doesn't really know anything about tech. Well, 10 years later, she's got two tours of duty under her belt, a lot of experience. She's now a 38-year-old SVP, C-level person at whatever company she's at now. And she's a super qualified founder today. She's been around the block. She, she knows how these companies work. She knows how to build a growth company. And she's ready to start something. So what we're seeing is a, a real burgeoning of, of very differently qualified founders in New York today. Welcome to The Syndicate, the podcast about the investors behind the overnight successes. It takes years. It takes money. On this show, we interview the top angel investors, venture capitalists, and startups to share what it really takes to succeed with startup investing. I'm your host, Matt Ward, and I'm a serial entrepreneur and angel investor. And I believe startups are the future, and angel investing is the best way to build real true wealth. To find out more about us, please visit thesyndicate.vc. But now, let's get on with the show. Okay, this is take two. We got the start button this time. Guys, welcome back to The Syndicate. I'm in Toronto. We've got a new background, much better than my old one. I'm here visiting some awesome VCs, but I've got somebody pretty awesome on the line. Brad's for Luga. It's almost impossible to read his name, but he's killing it as a VC with Primary VC, a founder, managing partner, and wanted to get him on the program to talk about Virginia. Turns out he's in Manhattan. My research is terrible. Thanks for coming today, Brad. My pleasure. I see you took a year off. Are you from South Africa? No, no. I, uh, but I spent a year there, a few years out of college when I was a strategy consultant and had uh, decided not to go abroad in college and then promised myself I was going to go do something rather adventurous at some point once I got out of college. So that was that. What did, what did the adventurous stuff end up being? So you went to South Africa. How'd you like it? How was the scene? Uh, it was a blast. It's the, you know, outside of things that have happened with my kids, I would say it's unquestionably the best year of my life. I, the firm I worked for at the time had an office down there. And so I managed to get transferred as an expat for a year and did a ton of traveling. And then at the end, took a four-month sabbatical and you know, walked out of Joburg to a bus station and uh, went wandering around Southern and Eastern Africa for uh, nearly four months, which was amazing. When was this? This was uh, late 98. Fall of Ooh, 98. so was this, was this pre, pre-apartheid ending? No, Mandela was president, had been for a few years. It was when I got there, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission was in full swing. It was a pretty, pretty fascinating time. And I was working for Coca-Cola was our client and Coke had basically, uh, Coke had left the country during apartheid, like, like most multinational companies had. And then when they came back, they had kind of completely botched their entry into the market and just tried to apply the sort of standard first world marketing template and go to market strategy template to South Africa. Uh, and in a shocking turn of events, that didn't work. And uh, we came in to help them kind of totally reassess how they were going to market, which meant uh, which meant we were doing a ton of research on the, the culture and the, you know, the makeup of the economy and the retail infrastructure and all of that, which, you know, involved going into townships and, and exploring the the uh, shabines, which are these little informal bars and tuck shops and spazas, which are these little informal retail outlets. And, and it, you know, basically I was getting paid to hang out in and learn about this culture in a really powerful firsthand way. It was amazing. 
you were getting paid foreign currency as well. So it was even more amazing, I imagine. Uh, yeah, I was getting paid American dollars and, and staying out of the country long enough to dodge Uncle Sam on most of those earnings. So uh, it was it was all a great formula. You can never dodge all of it, though. You still have the golden handcuffs of America. It's beautiful. But so you're working in these you're working in these developing markets. Where what's your focus today as a venture firm? And why didn't you focus more on emerging markets? Good question. Well, I think I think the U.S. is without question the the greatest center of tech innovation and opportunity in the venture world. I had, you know, yeah, you'd have to be there, I think, to do it well. You can't. I don't think you can be an effective emerging markets early stage investor unless you are living and operating in those markets, and for a variety of you know family and personal reasons. Well, I I loved living there and would love to do something like that again at some point. I wasn't going to spend my whole life there. And it's a pretty, for a variety of reasons that the newspaper is pretty clear about, it's a complicated thing to, you know, raise a family, a complicated place to, to have especially a Especially Joburg. Yeah, exactly. Cape Town, Cape Town would be much easier, especially now. But Joburg back then, I have to imagine it was just, uh, it was a crazy. It was a little raw, not, you know, not that bad. And the, uh, you know, the scar on the back of my arm here actually came from the, uh, the mugging in Cape Town, not Johannesburg. Interesting. I found Cape, we found Cape Town incredibly friendly. We uh, had more trouble in other places, South America specifically. But that's it's interesting. What led you into venture then? So I kind of snuck in the the back door about five minutes before the bubble burst, the, you know, the first internet bubble, when I had just decided I wanted to get out of the the consulting business and do something where that was materially closer to kind of where the rubber met the road on things. It was it was really fun and intellectually interesting to do the work that I did with, you know, big corporations like Coca-Cola and Merck and, and folks like that. And a lot of which was around, you know, market entry work and market analysis uh, and thinking about new products and, and new technologies. But we were so far removed from, you know, the operational stuff and where, and where the work actually happened that that was always frustrating. You do all the work, you collaborate with clients, come up with the answers, and then it would be months and months and months before results would actually be generated. And so I wanted to find something that kind of kept the variety and intellectual stimulation that the strategy consulting world did, but moved me, you know, a lot closer to, to the action, if you will. And I had a good friend in the venture business who, you know, made a hard pitch that the venture was, was the perfect place to do that and helped me get into the business back then. And, you know, with a tiny little firm that probably never should have existed, but was one of those products of the products of the bubble where there was a pro- proliferation of venture firms, not unlike the proliferation we're seeing in the last couple of years here now. Uh, this one, you know, probably didn't deserve to exist, but we got in there, the bubble burst, and I just kind of put my head down and managed to <laughs> manage to stay out of trouble while learning a lot of hard lessons, shutting companies down and figuring out how to make, you know, six months of cash turn into 15 months of cash and scraping and clawing and, uh, it was it was hard times, but it was uh, a lot of good education. You brought up the fact that it was similar to today. Are we in a bubble now? What do you think? I think it. Yeah, I would say there's definitely bubbleish environments, especially if you look at the combination of early stage, just the number of firms, the fact that the checks are going down, there aren't as many being written, and then the money pouring into blockchain. I think you have a very interesting 
whatever it's called when you combine all of those things together where we could have an interesting kicking out. Yeah, let me, let me give you a, a one fact. We, so we're, we are just now closing a new fund, our second fund at primary. And we have a, a large, you know, relatively notable fund of funds who's a new institutional investor in the fund. And they have a new fund within their organizations that, that's focused purely on the micro VC market, kind of the $125 million funds and below. And, and the, that's where all of the seed investors operate. That's where, where we are. Uh, this is a, you know, our second fund is a hundred million dollar fund focused most, mostly on seed as the initial point of entry. And, you know, these guys have made, they have scoured the landscape. They've looked at every fund in that world, in that universe. Um, they've made 12 bets. We're thrilled and, and feel humbled to be one of them. But how many, how many U.S.-based micro VC funds do you think that they came to know and looked at in the process of getting to those 12? 300. 550. None of them existed eight years ago. So if that's, if that's not a bubble, I don't know what is. Well, there's two things, though. None of them existed eight years ago because it cost, a, it cost so much more to start the business that essentially people were throwing Series A money at something that was essentially nothing. Yeah. Which is, now, it's, which is now Series A or Series B, but originally was a seed deal. So it's kind yeah. of some of it makes sense. And I think when you look at bubbles, it, it's not actually how a real bubble works, but a real bubble... It's going to go up, it's going to pop, it's going to come back down, not quite as low as it was previously, and then it'll start going back up again. And that's kind of our bubble up, bubble down system of climbing the steps, three steps forward, two steps back. You're still moving forward, but there are some pretty big drop-offs. Yeah. Yeah, fair enough. And so one, of the things, one of the things that is challenging, though, about this, the current environment is now that we're, you know, we're, we're fully 10 years removed from the financial crisis. And that means we have an awful lot of people in fairly senior positions in either the venture business or the, the underlying tech company business who've never lived through a tough market environment. You know, if you, if you got into the market as a, let's say, a you know, 27-year-old graduating from business school in 2009, you kind of knew things were, were tough, but you hadn't lived through the the disruption that caused it. And then all you've ever known for the last nine years is up and to the right for the market. Uh, and I think that creates a fair bit of undisciplined behavior that, that we're seeing right now. Are you an optimist or pessimist? <laughs> I'm a venture capitalist, so I have to be an optimist, right? But I'm, I'm at least feeling... I'm a pessimist in the room, though, always. What's that? I don't remember who it was. Someone real smart said it. But in a room full of optimists, you need one pessimist. Mm-hmm. Well, that's an interesting. It's an interesting statement. In a, you can't be a VC without being an optimist at a fundamental level. But when you are dealing with entrepreneurs, you're dealing with a class of people who are even more optimistic. You know, whose whose very existence requires an order of magnitude greater optimism than your own, and so you do become the relative pessimist. How do you deal with that and with expectations when you're dealing with entrepreneurs where, of course, this is going to work and there's not a chance of failure? Because if people realized how hard it was, they wouldn't start or they wouldn't dream as big. And the fact that no one tells you something's impossible is the only reason why you can do something that everyone else thinks is impossible. 
Absolutely. And I think you can't, you know, while, while I or my peers in the business end up often being the relative pessimists in the room, and again, it's, it's relative pessimism, the, I have seen companies really hurt by investors who take that pessimism too far and, you know, rein in operators and, and hold them back from taking the big swings that they want to take, that their you know, dreams would lead them to. And I think that's, that's dangerous and, and can be disastrous for, for companies. Or if not disastrous, it can at least be a real shame in the degree to which it, it keeps them from achieving the, the highest heights that they might deserve to achieve. Um, you know, it's, it, if, if we were to operate as investors in a way that was really about kind of protecting our capital and managing downside risks, we'd never have any huge upside outcomes. So you have to, you have to learn how to walk the line between, you know, helping to sitting back, looking at the forest all the time and helping to make sure that things don't go completely off the rails, but not intervening so much in a way that, that keeps these amazing men and women from chasing the, chasing the crazy ideas that they're chasing. Devil's advocate, you can flip it the opposite way as well, because a lot of VCs push startups to go bigger than they should, which creates a lot of the failing problems where you need to scale faster, you need to go bigger, and ultimately do something unsustainable or impossible. How do you balance that? Because it is that two-sided coin. Yeah, and, and, and I have the luxury in my business of a portfolio of opportunities. And in a given fund, we just finished investing a, a fund that has 25 names in it. And you know, if three or four of those are really successful, we're going to have a fantastic fund. And that means that I can afford for, certainly I can afford for 10 of those things to go to zero. And that doesn't really have an impact on the ultimate performance of the fund if I have those handful that are real outlier performers and then a bunch of solid, you know, doubles and triples. And that's what leads people to on the investor side to sometimes like drive too hard, drive too hard. Because when you think you've got a, a potential moonshot, our incentives actually are to push that thing to, to be as much of a moonshot as it can be. But if you're the founder, it's all you've got. And, you know, you would, I may be thinking, I want this to be a billion dollar company and I'll take the risk that it's nothing on the chance that it might be. And my expected value is maximized that way. But if you're sitting there and it's, well, we could be a, you know, we know we could be a $250 million company without taking too much risk. That's a, that's a massive life-changing event. You never have to work again. Your family is set forever kind of thing. So it's, it is, it is the, probably the most fundamental place in which investor founder needs, desires, incentives are not quite as aligned as you might want them to be. They're kind of exponentially inverted and there's that happy medium zone. And as long as you're somewhere in the happy medium zone, everyone wins. But if you get outside of there, it can get risky. What's your thesis? What's your focus? We are, uh, we are New York based. We are New York focused. We just believe that what's been going on in New York for the last really 10 years since the financial crisis is an amazing burgeoning of, of innovation, co- company creation. New York was, you know, the New York tech community was, you know, somewhat counterintuitively blessed by the financial crisis and that it drove 
an amazing had led to this amazing structural shift in the labor market as you know tens of thousands of people got ejected from the finance world and that's a pretty high powered capable collection of people and those people they a not insignificant portion of that population migrated their way to what was you know in in 0809 the beginnings of a pretty exciting rebirth of the tech ecosystem in New York and that talent uh, pool just supercharged uh, the market in many ways. And so we're now sitting, you know, 10 years later and those people who were Sally Smith, who at 28 lost her job at, at Lehman and went to work for Etsy, which was this you know brand new, nobody knew what it was company. And she's a newbie who doesn't really know anything about tech. Well, 10 years later, she's got two tours of duty under her belt, a lot of experience. She's now a 38-year-old SVP, C-level person at whatever company she's at now. And she's a super qualified founder today. She's been around the block. She, she knows how these companies work. She knows how to build a growth company. And she's ready to start something. So what we're seeing is a, a real burgeoning of, of very differently qualified founders in New York today than we were before. And so given the given what we believe, my partner Ben, San, and I believe to be the only accelerating pace of company creation and development in New York, and the still relative immaturity of the venture community in New York, when we got together and raised our first fund three years ago, we said, let's let's just go all in on this. Let's uh, let's be the best seed investor, the best partner to founders on the journey from seed to series A in New York. And if we can, if we can do that, we can do something pretty special. And, and our belief all along was that the best way to do that was to, you know, not just be Ben and Brad and an associate and an admin, which is kind of the typical model for a fund of this size. But we said, let's build a real, a, a team that, you know, almost functions like an operating company and think about the capabilities and resources that we want to that we want to bring on board to help those companies. And when you take a geographic focus to your investment strategy, you can do things differentially around portfolio impact and, and the, the operating resources and capabilities that you build. Because you can, I mean, from our office on 21st Street, you can, we can get to every single one of our companies, except one. There's one company who's a little too far out in Brooklyn, but all of the other ones you can literally get to in 20 minutes. And that's awesome. That's like, that's a big part of the magic of New York as well. There's no, we're not schlepping up and down 101 or 280 on the, on the peninsula between San Francisco and Silicon Valley. Like it's all right there. And so, you know, our, our uh, talent team, we have two full-time recruiters, our, you know, operating partner, our, you know, market development resources, et cetera, et cetera. They're all able to get out and help us connect with and work with those companies. And, and we think that creates a very different experience for the companies we partner with. I just wanted to take a quick time out to tell you that the Syndicate Podcast comes to you from yours truly, Matt Ward, has no ads and is designed to help angel investors and tech startups succeed. We don't monetize. I do this 100% out of the goodness of my heart and the beautiful networking opportunities to get to chit-chat with some of the smartest, best angels and VCs around the globe and to help you guys. If you appreciate this, tell an angel or VC about us, refer us to a startup, or even leave a review. If you go to the syndicate.vc slash iTunes, I know it's clunky, it's terrible, but if you leave a review in there, it really helps us with reaching more angel investors and making the program as awesome as possible. 
If you want to learn a little bit more about us, get some more inside information, get access to our 20-step investor checklist, and get invites into all of our roundtables, including cryptocurrency, artificial intelligence, consumer tech with Tim O'Reilly, and more, go to thesyndicate.vc. If you go there, subscribe, get on our email list, you'll get all of our best content delivered to you completely for free, right to your email address. If you like this podcast and want more like it, thesyndicate.vc. Now, let's get on with our podcast. So let me ask you, you set a micro VC under 120 million. Your goal is to work with seed stage. I'm going to ask you a hard question. Is your goal to ultimately build the fund bigger? Because that's how VC incentive structures are aligned. The larger the fund, the larger the management fees. Do you want to always stay small? And if yes, how do you grow in advance while still staying small? We don't want to get very much bigger. And it's a function of we could grow an important number is the the dollars per investing partner ratio. So I would argue that if at a hundred million dollars with two partners, that's not that functionally different to uh, structure than $150 million with three partners, probably discounted a little bit and say, you know, you could easily be 125, $30 million with three partners and you're not playing a different sport. You know, you're, Check sizes are the same. Mm-hmm. What's meaningful ownership to you is the same. You just do you do more deals because you add add resources that can do more deals. So, you know, Ben and I are not um, we are not like bound and determined to be more than a three person or more than a two person partnership. But I think uh, we would love to think that we might be over time. We're not going to rush it. We're not going to do it with anything other than the very very best people that we're most excited about. But you know, we think about. Maybe some weekday we'd be a four-person partnership, and then Ben does all the work um, on the consumer side for us. I do all the uh, enterprise investing for us. And if we were to someday each have a partner on our respective sides of the house, that would be great. And maybe then we'd be a 150, 175 would be a reasonable fund size and keep the dollars per partner relatively aligned. But the you know. The reality, too, is that as you raise new funds, you trigger new management fee flows. And if you're on a normal, you know, kind of three-ish year cycle of new funds, and then you invest for three years, and then you have a new fund that you invest for three years, the fees do stack up. And so we can grow organizationally without without having to increase fund size because we can just afford to do more. And that's certainly what we're doing now. We'll have, you know, by the middle of this year, we'll have a 14 or 15 person team on a hundred million dollar fund, which is not very many people do that, but that's up from, that'll be up from a year prior when we were a, a eight or nine person team. How do the management fee decay structure look like? I know a lot of funds, they'll lower the fee structure after the first three years, five years, et cetera, of investing just because there's less effort that goes into building the fund. Yeah, usually it's uh, five or six years. It runs at whatever you started at and then drops down maybe a quarter point a year uh, from there to the to year 10 when things end. That's a, that's so a realistically, pretty, it still adds a lot. Yeah, yeah. And so I think that's, where, gears you know, a little- that's, that's, uh, that's math and economics that I think not a lot of founders understand. But if you if you do understand and you start to pencil out what the what the budget of a management company looks like three or four funds in, if you look at a fund that hasn't added a lot of 
resources and a lot of expenses to its management company budget that is outside of like the partner's W-2, that's when you're looking at somebody who is definitely not well aligned with their limited partners. Makes sense. Basically, the older the fund is, they have more resources. If they're not deploying those resources, then they're probably a shitty partner to have in the beginning. You could also make the argument for an early VC not having as much resources, but at the same time, they'll be much more aligned because, oh my God, we have to make this work if we want to raise our second and third fund. Exactly. Exactly. I put the words in your mouth and we'll pretend like you said it. Sound good? Exactly what I've said before. So well, well done. Let's hit the lightning round now. Some rapid fire questions. Sound good? Yeah. What's the first deal you did? Profile systems. Interesting. How'd it go? Totally ripped out and replaced the management team, raised some really complicated money, got it sold to another private company, crossed our fingers for a couple of years. That company got bought by AT&T and we ended up getting, I think, twice our money back. But it was a long, messy process. So you made all the mistakes and somehow still got a single. It's not too bad. Yeah. What are you excited about today? Uh, I, you know, there's a lot of stuff that I'm excited about that is people might view as kind of old and boring still. And then there's a lot of stuff that I'm excited about that's, that's more cutting edge, but I, I have spent a lot of time in the last several years in vertical SaaS companies, tightly targeted enterprise software applications that serve distinct industrial markets. And for me, in many ways, the, the less sexy, the better. So we've done a bunch. We've done stuff in in construction and and real estate and some like inane backwaters of the healthcare and healthcare administration world and and financial services, regulatory technologies. And the reality is, is if you look across the the broader economy, the amount of the amount of paper that still exists and the amount of like the amount of processes that could have operated virtually exactly the same way in 1985 as they do today. It's kind of depressing, but it's also kind of exciting because there's just an enormous amount of opportunity there. Because part of what's led those things to, to endure so long is that the you know, senior people in those organizations just weren't people who were tech native, grew, grew up with these technologies. And you know, I'm now 45. I'm you know, 23 years removed from college. I'm 25 years removed from the first email I sent. So every day of my professional life has involved email and the web. And that means, you know, me and my peers of my generation, you know, we have a different set of expectations for how things can work than, than folks who were dictating letters to their secretaries and, and, you know, sending faxes their, their entire life. And the 45-year-olds, you know, we're now in charge of, I, I don't know exactly what this stat is, but I would be willing to bet, and I'm certainly betting a lot of our investment activity on the reality that probably, you know, well over two-thirds of all technology spend is now controlled by people who, who are my age or younger. And that has led to a real change in, in expectations and opportunities. So, and with New York being the, what I like to call the, the domain expertise capital of the world that kind of has more industries with serious presence here than, than anywhere else in the world. We've just got very unique pools of talent and concentration of customers to build some of these vertical, vertical enterprise software companies around. So that's something I've been doing a lot of for the last several years and I, and I will continue to do. 
but we're increasingly also looking at, at places where where what is happening now with with and has been happening for a few years with machine learning and, and artificial intelligence the the ways that you can activate data both within companies like that but in other around other enterprise processes to automate systems and automate processes is is really phenomenal and exciting and you know we've got a company that we backed uh, probably not quite a year and a half ago called electric which is a artificial intelligence driven solution for IT support for small businesses built around the realization that 85 90% of all IT support tickets in the world are for you know pretty predictable repeating processes and if you structure the data the right way around you know how you collect those queries and how you structure the data you can automate a lot of the response to those things so electric now for 25 to 500 person companies and, and they'll move up market from there over time it support is now delivered via slack to those people and you go into you go into the electric slack channel and say you know my computer's running slow or you know i can't access my g suite account or whatever and you end up in a real-time fully automated response loop that makes you as a end user radically happier uh, because you get response and resolution somewhat instantaneously and your employer saves a boatload of money by not having fred the it guy running around doing a mediocre job with his slow response times for everybody so there's a whole world of opportunities like that 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 we're awfully excited about as well there is for those i'm not as sure how strong the network effects are if that's going to be a large number of players winning those markets and by winning i.e not mass winning which makes it challenging for larger scale vcs the well, we uh, we have a bunch of larger scale VCs awfully excited about that business right now. So they're all not just well, that in general, but the the, yeah. the chat focused solutions. The, yeah, I think that like pure play, sort of simple chatbot stuff. You're right. Like there has to be data network effects behind it. There has to be. I mean, Electric has more of this data structured in the right way today than I think anybody in the world does. They need to keep the pedal on the floor to to keep building that that kind of data driven moat, but they are growing like a weed, so it's working for now at least. Two biggest investment wins to date. Biggest company called Ticketfly that started jointly in New York City and San Francisco and ended up consolidating to San Francisco. They were the built the leading company in the kind of lower and mid market live music and event space, competing with the the Ticketmaster monopoly, but really consolidated a bunch of the bottom end of the market, sold it a few years ago to Pandora for just under half a billion dollars. And we led the seed round there five years before that. A company called TXVIA, which is an a alternative payments platform that uh, was started by a couple of guys with deep experience in the payments industry in New York City. We were co-leads of the seed round there and started building a great business. We're partnering with Google at a time when Google Wallet, I think the sale was 2013 now, when Google Wallet was relevant and going off the rails. Um, it's questionable whether or not it's ever gotten on the rails, but it was a hugely hyped initiative for Google and they realized they didn't have the underlying technology answered. And TXV had built this incredibly flexible and robust platform for building alternative payment systems. And they talked to 
Google about becoming a customer and ended up buying them and, uh, and sort of bittersweet because it became a very important piece of technology to, for Google. But, you know, despite the fact that they paid hundreds of millions of dollars for it, they, they fired all the customers the next day and, and just pulled it in house, which is the sort of thing that you can do when you're Google. Well, maybe Google may be having some troubles in the future. I, I see voice creating challenges in their search business, which is the vast majority of their business. We'll see. It's uh, they're losing. They're losing badly in the voice in the voice race. I wouldn't say they're losing badly. I'd say they're losing the stuff that matters. Basically, Amazon is. I, I have a book coming out on this pretty soon, but Amazon is killing it just because of the way they've built their system. You use the voice so that you can buy from Amazon, and then Amazon, of course, is going to give you Amazon Basics because you don't want something other than the Amazon version. The Amazon version gives us the highest margins. So Amazon is kind of slowly cutting Google out of everything that matters. But Google's voice technology, to my understanding, is better. It's just used less because Amazon has an easier-to-use system. And then Apple's just kind of a joke at this point. Yeah, but, but, but used less means gets smarter less quickly. And it's so, used, yeah, I would, I would agree. Yeah, that's not a sustainable position. Potentially, I think, I think a lot of the stuff that people use the Echoes for and use Amazon and Alexa for are very simple things. Play a song, buy a product, etc. The Google seems to have a much higher level grasp on that, but that's just my understanding from research. We will yeah. see how it plays out, though. Yeah. But anti-portfolio, we love the home runs, but we also love the massive strikeouts. Who, who'd you miss? I passed late in the process when absolutely could have could have done it on uh, BuzzFeed, which is one of the most successful companies in New York in the last decade. Uh, serious questions about, you know, what their future is and how sustainable their economic model is. And, you know, they are a, a media business after all. And so I don't know that I'd be a big buyer of BuzzFeed stock today, but I know that if I had COVID that seed round, like we might have, we would have had we would have sold so much secondary stock by now already that it would have been a, a monster outcome. Before the clickbaity bomb expires. Yeah. We're, we're getting there. It's, it's BuzzFeed's kind of junk. It's like Huffington Post. Um, if you could ask founders one question. Post. That's who started it. It's the, I didn't know it was the same person. Okay. Jonah, Jonah Peretti was the guy who built the, the sort of viral machine within HuffPo. Mm-hmm. If you look at the companies that still use Amazon Instant Articles, those are like two of the only ones you've heard of. And it's just because it's, it's the clickbait junk. But if you could ask founder one question before investing, what would it be? I ask every founder the same question, which is, tell me how what you've done in the past led you to this being the thing you have to spend the next 10 years of your life on. It's a good question. How do you evaluate it? I'm a big leader, believer in, in the importance of founder market fit. Uh, and that doesn't mean that in many instances, that means for certainly for enterprise software companies, these companies are started by people who are solving problems they experienced in their lives. Uh, you know, a lot of vertical SaaS companies are started that way. I was, um, I mean, I've got a, a good friend who's the uh, founder of a company called Metadata, which is a four or five billion dollar public company now serving the pharmaceutical research, uh, research and development world. And he was a, you know, a bench biochemist. And uh, he and his partner thought that there was a bunch of inane stuff about how processes worked for managing clinical trials and tracking research. And they went out and built a, built a company to solve that. That's kind of purest founder market fit. But, but sometimes it, it's just somebody who has a 
comes into a market somewhat more tangentially and just has a intuitive awareness of things, or, or you just can hear a story about the logic for how something that they were doing over here rhymes with a problem in a market over here that they got excited about. Um, and what, you know, the wrong answer to that question is, you know, me and my buddies were sitting around our, our common room at HBS drinking beer. And we like, we know we want to start a company because that's what we should do because we're the masters of the universe in the future. And, and let's and we do got it to Harvard. Yeah. And we started to get into, right. You, you, you come up with some ideas on the whiteboard and you spend a couple of days whittling it down to one and off you go. And that is not founder market fit. Completely agree. I just realized we're running out of time. You need to go save the world. So where's the best place for people to reach out to you on the line? The best way to get, get in touch with us at primary. Yeah. You primary, wherever you think the best place is. The best place to get in touch with us is, is, I mean, you are welcome to email any of us all the time, but I can tell you that like most people, you know, we don't, we don't respond nearly as well to over the transom opportunities as we do to stuff that's, that's comes in by a warm introductions. And the thing I tell entrepreneurs all the time is that's not so much about, um, you know, I need you to be validated and introduced to me. It's that, uh, one of the hardest things you're going to have to do as an entrepreneur is, is sell and access people of all sorts, capital providers, customers, the best engineers, the best sales people to lead your business. And, you can't do all of that by cold outbound email. You got to work your networks, build your networks and show you've got them. And so if you can't prove those capabilities on the way into your capital providers, then you're telling your capital providers something about your capabilities. Or your hustle, one or the other. Or Brad's, Brad's for Luga, guys. It's almost impossible to spell. It's like Beluga, but it's more like Sverluga. We'll put links and everything in the show notes. Thanks for coming today, Brad. My pleasure. Thanks a lot. And if you guys have enjoyed this and you haven't left a review, Shame on you. The syndicate.vc slash iTunes. Seriously, leave a review. It helps us reach more founders, awesome VCs, investors. And it makes me feel not shitty about running the show. I get to meet incredible people and that's great, but we need to make a big impact here. The syndicate.vc slash iTunes. And thanks for coming today again, Brad. Yeah, thanks. See you later. I'll talk to you guys later soon. Cheers. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to The Syndicate, the podcast where angel investors and VCs go off the cuff and discuss the ins and outs of the venture ecosystem. We're here to share the tips and tricks of the best in the business, because startups and tech make the pie bigger. To learn more about us and what we do, visit thesyndicate.vc. And to join our syndicate on AngelList, just go to thesyndicate.vc slash join and get access to some of the best startup deals. This has been another episode of The Syndicate. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you guys again next week.